Well, good morning again. It's been a good day. I don't know about you, but I am always, I don't know what the word is, moved would be one word, but I think also humbled, appreciative, um, when somebody is willing to show emotion. Uh, in in front of us. And so, Ed, thank you for uh, sharing your heart with us this morning. Uh, It was a beautiful thing to hear what you shared. It was also a beautiful thing that happened right here. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but Trey just grabbed a hold of Tracy and then Georgia did the same thing and just just cried with her. Uh, What a beautiful example of the love of Christ to one another. Uh, just this beautiful, beautiful thing, and that you know, really that that gets me ready to talk about what we're talking about this morning. <clears throat> if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter eight. John chapter eight—that's where we will be in, uh, in in just a minute. And while you're turning there, I want to remind you that on May the twenty-sixth, I will be out of the country. But Tim will be preaching. That'll be their final Sunday here with us at Cornerstone. And all of us are really hating that. But at the same time, we wish them the best and Godspeed in their, uh, in their new uh, careers, in their new community. And um, you'll get to hear him on that day. And so I'm excited that his last Sunday here, that you will actually hear a word from God from him uh, before they depart. So that'll be, a, that'll be a really good thing. Well, we are continuing in our series that is titled, Who is Jesus? It's a series that we kicked off last week. And if you were here, then you know that, that what I said is that there are a lot of people who debate this question of, of who is Jesus. And some say that, that Jesus was a liar. Some people say that Jesus was an absolute lunatic, and others say that Jesus is Lord. We are attempting to let Jesus answer this question himself by looking into the Word, seeing what the Word of God says about who he is. Hear these words from the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that light, that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness does not overcome it. And you know, that's how it was in the beginning. There was light. There was hope. There was life. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created and said, it is good. Then as we know in in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes along And begins to tempt Eve. And she in turn includes her husband. 
And they take of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the only tree that they were not supposed to eat of, and they they take that fruit, and as they take that fruit, sin enters the world. And along with sin, an age of darkness is ushered in. You see, it's because of our sin, because of our sin, we are shrouded in darkness as well. So many people are walking in the darkness. And it, it's not hard to see. All we have to do is turn on the news at night. All we have to do is pick up a newspaper if you still do that. All we have to do is open up a phone or a computer and go to social media and see that darkness is everywhere. And it seems to be continually spreading. And what I want to suggest this morning is that in some way, shape, or form, every single person has been touched by the darkness of sin. No matter what that might be, it it might be that you have a marriage or have had a marriage that has been in trouble. And there's been darkness that, that surrounded it. It might be that you or a loved one has battled and battled and battled with addiction for many, many years and it's just had a grip on you or had a grip on your loved one that they could not break free and that darkness threatens to pull them in all the time. But it might be the the darkness of, of having a child who was once faithful. A child who once loved and and walked with the Lord but has chosen their own path and chosen to, to turn away for a time. Or maybe you have sat with someone, a loved one, that's received the news that a family member has an illness and that it's terminal, that they will not survive, and that brings a whole flood of, of emotions. Some of you know the darkness of divorce. Others Others have lived the darkness that comes from abuse. There's a lady by the name of Robin Giles. She is a faithful member of the church in Brooklyn, New York, but she tells the story of growing up in an abusive home with an abusive mother. As a child, her mother beat her into unconsciousness with the butt of a gun. She tells the story of another time where she was hiding because her mother's darkness was raging and looking for someone to envelop, and that happened to be Robin. And so she hid and found safety in a closet, and things seemed to quiet down, and so she just dared to open the door and and, and tiptoe down the hallway, and as she peered into the kitchen, there was her mother heating up a metal spatula on the stove. Robin turned to flee back to safety but couldn't make it, and she felt that searing spatula on the back of her leg. She lived in darkness. Others know darkness that comes along with, with death of losing a loved one. This is one that's, that speaks to me in a very real way. I've lost both my brothers. A month ago today, my father passed. Some of you understand that, that very 
darkness of losing someone that's close to you. And if it's not that, then maybe it's the darkness of mental illness. Something that we don't talk about enough. Something that we hang a stigmatism on and we, we say is taboo and we, we marginalize people. But there's darkness that comes along with that just as well. And it's funny how a lot of this darkness is, is intertwined. As we experience the, the, the darkness that comes from death or maybe uh, someone having a disease or a divorce or loss of a job or whatever it might be, that often what happens is that the darkness of, of depression begins to take rise as well. And if you've listened to me, to me for any time over the last 10 years, you know that that is a battle that I fight constantly. As a matter of fact, it's so real to me that when that happens, I have named those days the darkness. And I'll even tell Bethany, I'll say the darkness is here. A lot of us understand that. Some of it we cannot help. Some of the darkness is because we live in a, in a broken world and because people do broken things. Because hurt people hurt people. But we also must acknowledge that while hurt people hurt people, we have to acknowledge that a lot of the darkness is our own doing. A lot of the darkness is because of our, our own sin. And so many times because of sin in our lives, we, we shroud ourselves in darkness. If you can relate to just a little bit of what I said, maybe, maybe you've been through something like that, or, or maybe you know somebody like that, or at least you can say, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me. If you can relate to anything that I've just said over the last five minutes about darkness, please Raise your hand. God bless you. Wouldn't that be the worst sermon ever? <laughs> Spent ten minutes talking about darkness, getting us feeling really good. And then just, hey, alright, have a good day. Yeah, right. But the truth is, without Jesus... That's all there is. Okay? Without Jesus, all there is is pain. There's only hurting. Without Jesus, there is only suffering. Without Jesus, there is only darkness. There are probably 50 more stories that we could tell in here today. And without Jesus, all we would have is the pain and the brokenness and the suffering and the darkness. But praise God that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Because that is good news, is it not? Jesus makes this statement. He says, I am the light of the world. But he doesn't just stop there. He illuminates that statement by saying, anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness. 
but will have the light of life. And the good news is, that's available to every single one of us. The light of the world is available to all of us. And this is what Jesus is going to talk about today. And there's going to be an incredible story that's going to take place. And it's going to be, it's going to be full of intrigue. And there's going to be this brilliant trap that's set for Jesus. There's going to be death threats. More than death threats, there's going to be almost attempted murder in the story. But I think before we do that, before we jump into this text, we need to know a little bit of something about it. So if you've got a hard copy of your Bible in front of you, or you happen to be looking uh, on your phone, it, it may or may not say this, but your Bible might be like mine. And as you look from the very end of, of, of chapter 7, around verse 53, all the way to verse 11 of chapter 8, you might have a, a footnote, or like in my Bible, I have these lines, uh, and I have some brackets right here. And they say, it might say something along the lines of, the earliest manuscripts don't include chapter 7, verse 53, all the way through chapter 8, verse 11. Now, you may be wondering why that is. You may have never heard that addressed before, or maybe your translation doesn't say that at all. There are some translations that omit this entire piece of text. There are others that move it down a few verses. There are others that attach it to the end of John. But most modern translations today kind of have it right here, the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of, of chapter 8. Now then most scholars agree that the passage is a part of, is a part of inspired scripture. But they also agree that it's a fragment that was not added until later. The question is then, where does this story belong in the gospel account? Well, there's a, uh, a recently deceased, and I mean like within the last few days, like in the last week, deceased uh, pastor and theologian by the name of Warren Wearsby. He's, he's been, been very instrumental in the, uh, in the worldwide Christian world, uh, very influential in his writing. Uh, and what he says about this passage, he says, to many of us, the story fits right here. And when you look at the whole, when you look at the context of it, especially looking in chapter 7 and looking at the rest of chapter 8, I have to agree with him. It fits right here better than it fits anywhere else. The placement of this story in front of the I am statement sheds very much light on what Jesus is saying. Wearsby goes on and he says, In fact, the development of the entire chapter can easily be seen to grow out of this striking event that takes place in the temple. So now that we've set that aside, let's talk about the story. In chapter 7, Jesus is at the temple. And he is doing some teaching. It is during the time of the festival of tabernacles. And there are people that are all around him, and they are asking the very same question, realistically. They're asking the same question that we're asking. They want to know who Jesus is. And so Jesus begins to teach, and he begins to try to explain who he is. And he talks about the Holy Spirit. And then there's division about his claims. But he begins to lay it out for them. 
And when you get to chapter 8, what we see is that it takes an altogether darker tone. N.T. Wright points out that as the, pre- as the chapter presently stands, that it opens with people wanting to stone a woman to death, and it closes with people attempting to do the same thing to Jesus. Let's begin reading together. Starting in verse 2. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and he began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So there it is. Jesus is teaching. It's during this time. There's lots of people gathered around. He's teaching when all of a sudden the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the religious elite, the ones that are supposed to know better and have all the answers, the ones that should have recognized the Messiah for who He is, they grab a woman that the text says was literally caught in the act of adultery. They bring her out in the crowd, thrust her down in front of Jesus, and say, hey, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. We believe she should be put to death according to the law of Moses. What do you say? Now then, this is a true statement. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery with a married woman, he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife. Now then watch this. Both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Okay? That's the law. That is the law that these guys are referring to. Okay? So they have, they have law on their side. They've got Moses, and they have Moses' backing in doing this. But yet, there's a, there's a couple of problems here. Okay? The first question is, where's the man? Because what does that say right there? Both the adulterer and the adulteress, what? Must be put to death. But yet there is no man here. So, you know, what's the deal? Is this, is this some elaborate scheme? You know, was the man, was he a part of the plot? Was there never even a man to begin with? We don't know. But what we do know is that there is this woman... And they brought her to Jesus. They've got law on their side. They say she's broken this law and the penalty is death. And we want to stone her to death. What do you say? They have laid a brilliant trap for Jesus. Because they've drawn him out in public. Right? They've drawn him out in public. I mean, he's, he's in the middle of the crowd. He's talking like this. And they put him on the spot. What do you say? What are you going to do about this? Moses says, kill her. Moses says, stone her. What do you say? So here's the dilemma. 
Jesus is literally between a rock and a hard place. Pun very much intended. Because think about this. If Jesus says, yes, you're right, stone her, then his reputation as a friend to sinners is absolutely shot. And what was Jesus if nothing but a friend to sinners? But if he says, no, don't stone her, guess what? He's in violation of the law of Moses. So they have laid the perfect trap for what they think is going to to get Jesus, this guy that's been a thorn in their side, this guy who's been a nuisance to them. They have finally got him. And you've got to give them props. This is a pretty brilliant scheme. Okay, because how do you, I mean, how do you answer this question? How is Jesus going to answer this question? Well, watch this. Verse 7, or the end of verse 6. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. That's a great answer. Right? So he just stoops down in the dirt. Starts, I don't know what he's doing. You know, there's been all kinds of speculation. I think there's even been books written about what Jesus wrote. Nobody knows. You know, did he write their names? Uh, was he drawing stick figures? I don't know. You know, some people said he wrote forgiven. What I think he was probably doing is just doodling. Showing this ridiculous situation the content it actually deserves. And so, they persist in their questioning. It says he, he stood up and he says to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Now that's brilliant. Okay. You know, and, and, and you can just sort of see it. You don't know. And this, who knows how this really happened? Jesus, he's there in the middle of the crowds around him. Uh, they've got him. He's standing in front of him. Everybody's looking at him. They want to know what he's doing. He's drawing on the dirt, but that's not good enough. They keep wanting to know. And he says, okay. Whichever one of you doesn't have a sin, just one sin, you get to go first. Now, that's a brilliant answer. But it is also an extremely risky answer. There is a tremendous amount of risk with this answer. Okay? The Pharisees are trying to use the law to trap Jesus, but what Jesus does is he turns it back on them. He flips the script on them. He hasn't said that Moses is wrong. So realistically, they could have carried out. They could have carried on with this. Okay? Because he has not said that Moses is wrong But what he's really saying when he says, you who have no sin, you be the first one to throw. What he's really saying is if we're going to get serious about sin. I mean, if we're really going to get serious about this. Then we have to realize that we're all guilty. Okay. We want to get serious about this stoning somebody to death. And guess what? This is true today for us too. How many times how many times have we condemned people? We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to admit it. 
But how many times have we judged? How many times have we condemned someone and see the same thing is true for us? When we lay our lives up next to Jesus, guess what? We're not doing too hot either. So this is the response he gives them. The one without sin should be the first one to throw a stone. Then he stooped down again and he continued writing on the ground. It's brilliant. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. I'm pretty sure that's not what she was expecting to hear. But that's what you get with Jesus. You get what you don't expect. What she expects is probably to die. But yet, she, she, some, somehow she has not. She's, her life has come back into her hands. Now then, there have been people that have, have said things about this passage right here. They've said that Jesus is soft on sin. Or they've said that Jesus here is is excusing sin. N.T. Wright says this. He says, Being forgiven doesn't mean that the sin doesn't matter. On the contrary, forgiveness means that sin does matter. But that God is choosing to set it aside. Sin very much matters to Jesus. How do we know that? Because it's for that sin and every other sin that she committed and every other sin that you and I commit and will commit that Jesus went to the cross to die for. Sin was a big deal. Forgiveness doesn't mean, oh, don't worry about it. Forgiveness means that penalty against you while you deserve it, you're not going to suffer it. This response to her from Jesus is fascinating. She's been forgiven of her sins. That means that she has been rescued and saved from imminent death. And so now she must live out that forgiveness. So what does that mean for us? That means if I've been forgiven, and that means if you've been forgiven, if we have been forgiven... We've been saved from spiritual death and we must live out that forgiveness in our daily walk. We must live as forgiven. We must live as redeemed people. One more time, N.T. Wright says, being forgiven is not the same thing as, as tolerance. And this is not what she expected. She knew she was wrong. She knew what the penalty was were she to be caught. Yet instead of condemnation and death, Jesus gives her forgiveness and life. Why? Because Jesus came to bring light into the darkness of our lives. This is what Jesus came to do. And it's in this, this masterful encounter 
That, that Jesus brings this woman out of her darkness while at the same time exposing the darkness in the hearts of the Pharisees. He came to bring light. He came to bring life. And here's the thing. He offers this to us too. You see, if you're not a, a Christian, then like this woman, you're, you're walking around in, in darkness. But the good news is that Jesus has brought the same light to us as well. No matter how dark your sin is, no matter how dirty you think your past is, the light of Jesus can overcome it. And if you follow Him, you will never walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. You see, to, to follow Jesus means to believe that He is who He says He is. He said that He's the light of the world. But He also says that He is the Son of God. To follow Jesus as the light of, wor- uh, the, light of the world means to turn away from your sin. It means to become His disciple. It means to learn from His teachings about how to love God and to love others. It also means that we take up our cross daily and follow Him. You see, there's no abyss, there's no darkness that can stop the light of the world. So what will we do? But we can choose to to continue living in darkness. Or will we choose the light? 1 John 1, 5-7 says this. This is the message that we heard from Him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in Him. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. This is the question we've been asking. Who is... Jesus. What we see from this encounter is that Jesus is the light of the world that drives out the darkness. And that we must walk in the light as He is in the light.